Welcome to Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, where each week we explore a different facet of one of the largest, nearly intact, temperate zone ecosystems on Earth. Hi, my name is Gary Robson, and this is my co-host. I'm Eden Wandra. And you were probably expecting this episode to be about wildlife laws, as we said at the end of the last podcast it was going to be, but we ended up having to change the order of things a little bit. So actually, that's going to be our next episode. This one is all about a fixture of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and one of the most widespread carnivores on the planet Earth. They may be the smallest of the local canines, but they're the largest of the true foxes, the red fox. And we should probably start by answering the question that's on everybody's mind. What does the fox say? No one knows. What does the fox Nope, 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 nope. That's not what we meant. We do know what the fox says. And here it is. So we found ourselves the perfect guest for this episode of our podcast. Our guest today is Patrick Cross. He works for the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness Foundation, which we partner with for education programs such as the Trail Ambassador Program. And like Gary said, he's just the perfect candidate to talk about foxes. So we're very happy to have him on the podcast today. So welcome, Patrick. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to start us off? Well, thanks for having me. My name is Patrick Cross. I am the executive director of the Absorc Beartooth Wilderness Foundation. It's a job I just started in September. Before that, I was an ecologist working for a group called the Yellowstone Ecological Research Center in Bozeman. And part of that job included spending several winters up on the Beartooth Plateau studying foxes, which was part of my master's research. So one of the subjects of those papers was um, distinctive genetics of red foxes. What makes it distinctive? For a long time, folks have been noticing that the foxes up on the Beartooth Plateau are kind of lighter color than foxes at lower elevations. And kind of starting in the mid to late 1980s, there started to be some interest in the mountain fox populations across the Western United States. And there are a couple of different ideas about where the different fox populations came from. There are even some ideas that foxes at low elevation were European red foxes that had moved in from uh, foxes that had been translocated to the East Coast in the 18th century kind of thing, and then had been moving west with time. Whereas the higher elevation foxes were native foxes who were um, isolated up in these sky islands, high elevation habitats that were were different from down low. And, And kind of the idea is that as the original foxes came over from Eurasia back in the ice age times, uh, they were they came across the Beringia land bridge. They came down at the head of the glaciers as the glaciers advanced. And then at the end of the ice ages, when those glaciers receded, they followed the kind of boreal forest type habitats that they evolved in. And they followed them either back north or up in elevation. And that's when these animals, their ancestors, became isolated in the high elevation areas and the big mountain ranges like the Sierra Nevada, the Cascades, and the Rockies. And uh, then, and and this actually happened a couple of times, two ice ages, the Illinoisan Ice Age, which was over 150,000 years ago, and the, uh, the Wisconsin Ice Age, which ended about 15,000 years ago, our most recent ice age. And then came all these other foxes kind of at lower elevations. Now, some of these hypotheses, there's kind of some holes in it because, well, Lewis and Clark and early explorers like that saw foxes at low elevations. So uh, I've I've had a little bit of a, a concern about some of the hypotheses that they're purely European or non-native fox, but we won't, don't have time to get into that. So anyways, these, um, there were people noticed the foxes were lighter colors at high elevation in the Beartooths, started wondering if they were a unique population. 
And there is even a question of, well, we've just talked about three different colonization events, the Illinoisan, the Wisconsin, and the, the Wisconsin foxes are kind of more um, Wisconsin glaciation. Those foxes are the Alaskan and Northern Canada foxes derived from that event. And so, and then we've got this kind of more recent arrival of some non-native foxes, whether they're European or whether they're also from fur farms. Now that's, that's the much more documented source of some of the lower elevation foxes is from the fur farms. So between these, these two kind of natural colonization events and one or two or three human caused colonization events, there's a lot of different ways these foxes could have come from. The ones in the Beartooth look different. So where'd they come from? And that was kind of the, um, not only where'd they come from, but why are they still different? If we have all these foxes, they're the same species, they're all red fox, they could theoretically interbreed. Why are they staying different? Where'd they come from? And why are they remaining distinct to this day? So those were some of the questions we set out to answer. So we've, we've mentioned in the last few minutes here, the Beartooth Plateau and also the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness, which for anyone who's not familiar with it is at the northern end of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem and comprises nearly a million acres of absolutely gorgeous, mostly high altitude area here. When you speak of the potentially distinctive genetics, are you talking about the high altitude foxes nationwide here or about the ones in the Beartooth Plateau area specifically being a potentially separate subspecies? In some respects, there's one subspecies we're talking about is the Rocky Mountain subspecies. And it, it goes from Colorado up through this part of the area. Um, there's some populations in Utah, there's some populations in Idaho and a couple populations across Montana. And now keep in mind when these subspecies were first distinguished, there wasn't the genetic information or technology to really pick them out. They're basically were based on purely geographic range and physical characteristics like color. Now, over the past couple of decades, as the technology has improved and as people have collected samples from live foxes, from foxes in museums and things like that. In many respects, a lot of the genetic distinctions have lined up with what we expected from the previous classifications based on geography and physical characteristics alone. So there's good genetic support for this Rocky Mountain subspecies. We were kind of wondering whether the Rocky Mountain subspecies is pretty widespread, whether the ones at the very top of the Beartooth Plateau were different from the ones, say, in Yellowstone, because there is a little bit of a color difference. And so that was one of the questions, is whether perhaps the Yellowstone, kind of our hypothesis was, most of the Rocky Mountain subspecies came from that earlier colonization event during the Illinoisan glaciation. We were wondering whether the Beartooth happened to be from the later colonization event, the Wisconsin glaciation that is predominantly foxes who are in Alaska and Northern Canada now. There was a big glacier on top of the mountains. There's a big glacier out over the Great Plains. And right in between them, right along the Rocky Mountain front was a gap that would open up periodically. And so this ice-free corridor where it came down and where it kind of ended was right at the Beartooth Plateau. So that was kind of the thought. So again, I'm talking about the hypotheses. Should we cut to the chase and tell you the results? <laughs> So the results, we found out that no, there wasn't a distinction that the Yellowstone population and the, uh, the Beartooth population had the same ancestry, but it was all Rocky Mountain red fox ancestry. When we got to lower elevations, their ancestry was from all over the place. Um, I think the ones east of Red Lodge had Alaskan ancestry. North of town, we had Cascade ancestry. 
and in Paradise Valley, it was Eastern U.S. ancestry. All of those original populations are associated with fur farms. So we're thinking that that is a likely origin of where the ancestors of those foxes came from. The interesting thing, though, was the eastern foxes. And and I want to get too much into the genetic weeds, but we did some other tests where we compared known samples from known native Rocky Mountain populations and known fur farm populations. The guys from Paradise Valley who had eastern red fox DNA ancestry, they actually were very, very similar to the native Rocky Mountain known population that we compared them to, as opposed to the fur farm population. It was a type of test that would have grouped them and it put them in the group with the the native foxes. And so I kind of mentioned how uh, Lewis and Clark saw some low elevation native foxes. They probably had that Eastern ancestry DNA and nobody knows how far west that Eastern population came. So there's a chance that we actually sampled foxes who are part of the native Great Plains population that nobody really knows too much about and has kind of been thought to be more or less extinct, having integrated with these fur farm populations. So it was cool to see that the all of the foxes from Yellowstone up through the Beartooths were native Rocky Mountain red foxes. But the fact that we might have also found some evidence at lower elevations of a native Great Plains population, we weren't expecting that. And that was a pretty cool finding. Yeah, that is really cool. Could that have any implications for protecting the foxes in this area under like an Endangered Species Act? We need more information. We have some evidence of fur farm genetics around here. And actually down in Colorado, the Rocky Mountain red foxes down there, even at higher elevations, have far more fur farm integration in their populations. And so there's a question why we're not seeing it up here. This gets back to that question of, well, then why are they still distinct? An idea that we're suggesting is that as we go up in elevation, we're having different environmental conditions that um, are affecting the breeding of the foxes. Female foxes, they breed once a year and they have a, a set length gestation period and it has to be timed just right so that those uh, their kits are coming out at right at spring green up when the weather conditions are mild and when there's plenty of food Well, you think about it, spring green up even down in Red Lodge is way different from when you go up 5,000 feet higher up on top of the Beartooth Plateau. The timing of the breeding must be different than at higher elevations compared to low elevations. If If a lower elevation fox from say a fur farm were to move up into higher elevations and breed, her kits wouldn't survive. They'd come out too early when it was still midwinter light conditions. The DNA wouldn't survive up there either. So that's a little bit of where we're thinking why the Rocky Mountain Red Fox remains distinct up high elevation. Now, coming back to that Great Plains Red Fox, that that hypothesis doesn't work right there. So that's where I think we need a lot more information about how far distributed these guys are, where there are pockets of the native fox at the lower elevations and there's more research to be had which is exciting for us in the science world and exciting way for folks to participate too i mean we uh we got a lot of those low elevation samples from snowplow drivers from highway patrol officers from even fur trappers so it was kind of cool to kind of think how we might be able to work with folks to figure out how we can get some samples and see where we can go. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. What, why, why did you study in the winter time? I know that foxes, their coat color can change throughout the year. Would that have anything to do with the differentiation you're seeing between the coloration and the different areas? That's a real good question. And one thing kind of on that note, one of the things we've noticed was how furry 
the fox's feet are that when we trap them and look at their feet, you couldn't even see the, the nails or the toe pads or anything like that because they were so thick, covered in fur. And it was, it acts like a snowshoe. There was actually a previous study that did a, uh, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that calculated that the weight loading capability of the Rocky Mountain Red Fox is comparable to a lynx insofar as the foot area and the weight of the animal and how much they sink in the snow. And folks know pretty, pretty well that a Canada lynx is a well snow adapted animal. But that's kind of another one of these questions of like, well, is that just a, a winter phenomenon or is it, is it something that's kind of more permanent? Your, your comment about the snow load really caught me off guard there because lynxes have enormous feet and foxes have much smaller feet. Is this just because of the musculature on the lynx making it so much heavier? I think it's the hair. It comes down to the hair on the bottom of the fox's foot. And they actually, they have been measured to be a little bit bigger at higher elevations, but it's, it's the amount of fur and hair that's on the bottom that then spreads out. So it's not necessarily the foot itself that's bigger, but the footprint because of all the hair. The other thing about it is foxes, well, as you guys know, are, are really tiny animals. I ask people to guess how much a fox weighs and usually guesses come 20, 30 pounds. They're thinking about their dog at home, how much it weighs, that the fox looks pretty relatively big. So they're guessing pretty big. Biggest fox we caught on the Beartooth Plateau was 12 pounds. I mean, they're basically the size of somebody's cat. And again, it's all hair. It's all the fluff. So I, I think they're, they're kind of a surprising animal that way and that how much hair and that they're all a small, lightweight animal. Get, getting back Eden's question about why we are trapping in the winter. That is a really interesting and good question. The reason why we were so focused on doing research in the winter are two things. One, we were also studying habitat use. And one of the ways we were doing that was through snow tracking. So we were collecting the data that way. Um, the other thing had to do with trapping. And so I did three trapping seasons and one of them was in the summer and two in the winter. And I never caught a fox in the summer. For, for one, it's a different trapping technique with leg hold traps. They have pads on them. So it's not like Jeremiah Johnson, but still it's it, a more intensive trapping method that you, you can't do in the winter because it's a metal trap. It confines the animal, things like that. The other thing about it is you lure them in with scent rather than with bait and so I, I would do the best I could to set these traps to be, try to manage my own scent, to follow all the instructions. And there'd be times when the fox would find my trap, dig it up, turn it over and poop right on top of it. I mean, I couldn't set these things, like they would explode in my face. Like you, you cover them with really like fine dirt. And so, I mean, it would be hair trigger. And there'd be times I would be gently sifting the dirt on top of it and bam, it would still, it was so fine of trigger that it would go off. The dirt would get in my eyes. I'd have to start over again. That's how sensitive these things were. And the Fox would be able to still get it and remove it and flip it over. It, just to kind of show me like, who do you think you are, bud? Like you're, you're going to have to get up a little earlier to fool me. So, okay, so I, I had no success with the, the leg hold traps. In the winter, we used a totally different trap and it was a log cabin trap like Wolverine researchers use. And we actually thought about this because of hearing Wolverine researchers complaining about how many darn foxes they were catching. So we thought, oh, okay, well, maybe we should give this a shot. And the thing about in the winter, you load that thing up, not with scent, but with bait, I'd get roadkill elk from the Montana Highway Department. 
and we'd put an entire elk quarter in that thing. It's huge. It's the size of your desk, the, the trap itself. So the animal's not, not pinned down kind of thing. It's in a, it's in a big space. It's got a ton of food. And during the winter, they are, they don't have a bunch of food. They are food stressed. It's a tough life up there in the mountains. So when there's an opportunity to go in and eat a bunch of elk, you're, you're going to be a little bit more risk um, tolerant. You're, you're going to be, take your chances going into this weird looking box to get some elk for yourself rather than in the summertime when you got all kinds of other food uh, and aren't going to risk it going into some sketchy looking box. So that's, that's one reason why we trapped in the winter. Sorry to cut you off there, Gary. Actually, going back to the the trap anecdote you just gave us of flipping the trap over. Okay, yeah. Looking at the classic fox of mythology and fairy tale, the foxes frequently play the role of the trickster, much like a coyote does in you know, North American myth. Uh, the the clever animal, the one that's always tricking the prey in the fairy tales, is this a a realistic portrayal of a fox. I, I like it. I mean, I'd kind of say yes. They tell us in the, uh, in, in, you know, the wildlife world that we're not supposed to humanize these animals. Whereas I kind of wonder if a lot of times we're being anthropocentric by thinking that these kind of advanced emotions are exclusively human. There are some unique characteristics and individuality that we saw with the foxes, and they're more in tune with our emotions, I think, than, than we would give them credit for. When we were trapping and handling these animals, we didn't use drugs. It was pretty cool because we could actually kind of mimic canine dominance behavior and get the, the animal that would calm down, and we could kind of pin him down and, and put take the sample, put a collar on and release him without using immobilizing drugs. And I would talk to the animal and my boss, Bob Crabtree at Yellowstone Ecological Research Center would say, don't do that. It's, it's unnatural for them. But again, I kind of wonder a little bit of the animal could hear the tone of voice, could hear my emotion. He didn't know what was going on, but he knew that I wasn't going to eat him, that whatever I was doing to him, uh, it was weird, but it wasn't, I wasn't there to eat him. And I think that would make them calm down a bit. So, yeah. So I think there is, there is kind of some connection there. And when you, when you talk about kind of the trickster stuff, I mean, we had, we had one fellow, um, his name was M343. This is the other thing is how, okay, you're not supposed to humanize the animals. So uh, they, they say, don't give them a name, just stick to the the scientific number. And so M343 stood for male. And then 343 was his uh, caller ID number. Um, well, I, I could tell you what M343 like strikes me. That's as personal to me as Gary or Eden. Like <laughs> I, I think of these, like that's his name. Like I, I have like a personal connection to that name. So all M343, we'd, we'd see him catching uh, rodents, catching pocket gophers in the roadside meadows alongside the Beartooth Highway right after it had been plowed. And he'd catch the rodents and then come over and bury them right in the snowbank, right on the side of the highway. And he'd bury it and then go back to hunting, catch another one, come back to the highway, bury it, go back to hunting. And he'd work his way up about a two mile stretch of highway. Then he'd turn around trot right back down the highway, the side of the road, and retrieve all those caches. And one time we counted him with 12 pocket gophers in his mouth that he would jam in there and, and carry this big old wad of rodents. And where was he going? He was going to a den. And so we'd try to follow him to the den. And every time he'd go into these woods where then the snowpack disappeared and we'd lose him. And he he knew he'd like throw us off the trail basically and it wasn't until we got his jeep his um, radio caller data looked at it and noticed a cluster of points that we could go back and be like there's the den there it is and it was totally it was nowhere near the trees that he would shake us in every time 
And that same Fox, another thing looking at his data, he kind of lived up on up a little bit higher around the top of the world store there around Island Lake on the Beartooth Plateau, whereas my camp was a touch lower in the Beartooth Lake area. And his territory, he it's, it's not that far, but he usually wouldn't come down that far. Well, when we uh, had his GPS collar data, we could see points where he would come to our campsite and never come into camp, would always be in the trees right outside of camp where he could see us, but we couldn't see him. And just kind of hanging around the perimeter of the camp like that, probably like, who are these guys and what is this thing they put on me? The yeah, clever um, tricks to me. The the word, but that was nothing like F seven hundred. F seven hundred, a female that we caught in Clay Butte. A week, so we also had a cabin in Cook City, and a week after catching her, I was back in Cook. I was doing some office work, and foxes are really common in Cook. People feed them, so they come. It's not too uncommon to see a fox on your porch or right outside your window. So at first when I see this fox out there, I think nothing of it. But then I look up a little closer and she's staring at me through the window and has a GPS collar on her neck. And this is a week after we captured this animal and uh, she'd followed, showed up uh, over 20 miles away in Cook City and is staring at me through the window. So that one, I was... I was a little bit worried what kind of trick she had planned for me. Yeah, it was a little creepy. So, yeah, that they're they're cool animals, no doubt about that. To broaden the genetic question a little bit, um, there are other species of foxes that overlap red fox territory um, in Montana and in a lot of the Rockies here. The gray fox, swift fox, even Arctic fox. Has there been interbreeding between any of the fox species here? That's a good question. There's a lot of competition. And I know that in um, like parts of Scandinavia, the Arctic fox and the red fox have clashed a bit because the red fox is, they're, they're a little bit more adaptable. They're a little bit more robust. And with climate change, the red fox has actually been able to move farther north into habitats that were historically too cold for them in the process, displacing the, uh, some of the Arctic fox. The swift fox up there in northeastern Montana, that's, you know, they're such a small population. I, I don't know if we know enough about how they're interacting with red fox, but I imagine kind of a similar thing that the red fox being a little bit more robust, a little bit more adaptable, might kind of more of a competition type thing than, than an interbreeding thing might still pose a little bit of a challenge for the recovery efforts going on with the swift fox. The gray fox is actually pretty interesting because they're very far apart um, on the, the fox family tree from the red fox, that they're actually a different genus even. And we got to make sure it's confusing because it's kind of like um, our black bears. And a lot of folks realize that black bears can be all kinds of colors. They're not just black. They can be cinnamon. They can be brown. Kind of the same thing with the red fox. They can, be, they can be black. They can be very light color as we talked about and they can be gray. So you can have a gray red fox, but a gray fox is a whole nother, whole nother species, even a whole nother genus. And, and a much smaller animal as well. Much smaller. And I think they're even one of the more primitive on the fox family tree there, whereas the red fox is kind of a more advanced in evolution, uh, whereas the gray fox is almost closer related to the primordial ancestor of all the foxes. So yeah, kind of an interesting thing. Where, where the conservation concern is, is really with these other subspecies and populations of the red fox. Um, and, and that's a big concern. We're, we're actually seeing more of it, more of the integration with the non-native and the native foxes in the Pacific coast. 
um, some of the Sierra Nevada and Cascade foxes have a higher risk of getting these non-native genetics in than we're actually seeing in places like the Beartooths. And why that's a problem, I mean, it's a red fox, right? They're all the same species. What's, what's the big deal? The big deal might be some of those unique characteristics like the long hair on the feet that gives them the lynx-like snowshoe snow loading capability or like the lighter color fur that helps them hide in the winter and be a more effective hunter in a snowier environment. One of the things that always intrigued me about foxes was their behavioral similarities in a lot of ways to felines rather than canines. And coming from a tech background, I would refer to them as cat software running on dog hardware, <laughs> looking at, at the way they hunt, at the way they mark, at their preference for high spots. Are they behaviorally distinct from other foxes? I think it's interesting you say that because there's a lot of people who think that foxes are felines, like that don't recognize them as canines, which, you know, I, I think is, it's interesting. It's interesting you know, we, we talk about how we distinguish these animals and we look at physical characteristics, we look at the teeth, we look at the genetics, but then what is it that people, not just you, but lots of people are picking up on that make them classify it more in a feline than in a, uh, in a canine? And I, yeah, it is some of that behavior stuff. And so I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm I've read some other books about different cultures that have different taxonomy, that the way that they group the, the living world is oftentimes at odds with the way that Western science would want to group things. And so th there are number of kind of situations like this where there's not just scientific, but cultural groupings of animals that, um, that tap into something that, yeah, I mean, we, we want to look at the morphology. We want to look at the dentition pattern, the way the teeth are. We want to look at the genetics. Those are kind of the gold standard, but there's something to it. There's some value to these other, the behavior and the human intuition of what, what makes them distinct like this. And so, yeah, I definitely think compared to the other canines, the foxes are, are somewhat unique there. I mean, a, a wolf and a dog and a coyote and a jackal and all those kind of animals, pretty similar, but why the foxes are a little bit different. To get back to the genetic basis, I think it comes back to their more primitive evolutionarily, that they're more closer to the ancestor that at one point the dogs and the cats all shared a common ancestor. And as they started splitting off and becoming distinct in their own, becoming different families, then different genus, then different species, the fox is a little bit farther back in that evolutionary tree and a little bit closer to that primordial common ancestor of the dogs and the cats. That's okay. kind of the best, best I can do. I, otherwise, I think whatever that gut instinct is, it doesn't fully explain it, but there's something to it there. So it's cool you say that. Does any of that explain another question that I've been asked? One of the notable traits of coyotes is that as they've more than tripled their territory in, in North America over the last 150 years, as they move into new territories and new spaces, if they can't find other coyotes to breed with, they will happily and cheerfully breed with a wolf or a dog. And, and there's coy wolves all over Florida as the coyotes were getting established there. We hear of coy dogs all over the place, but never coy foxes. I, I think it's kind of like with the, um, with the gray fox and the red fox. I think they're just far enough apart that they, they won't produce the fertile hybrids like that. Have you guys heard about those um, 
a long-term 50 plus year experiment breeding foxes of all things in Siberia that was, um, it was a scientist who was on a quest to try to figure out the genetic basis for domestication. And so what he was doing was he was, he'd breed some foxes and basically every time there'd be a new kid of foxes, he'd stick his finger in the cage. If, uh, if the fox bit his finger, well, that one uh, became a fur pelt, which he'd sell, which would uh, fund his research. If the fox wow. didn't, but if he didn't bite the finger, then that fox went on to be bred in the next generation. And so this went, so the only foxes who were breeding were the ones who were not biting him. And so he was trying to see if he could create domestic foxes. And sure enough, after many generations of doing this, he ended up with a population of foxes that was much more calm, much more social to humans, things like that. Basically, they didn't bite him every time he stuck his finger in the cage. But the other thing about it was not only did those foxes, their behavior change, but their physical characteristics changed too. They got spots, their ears turned floppy, things like that, that he wasn't, he was specifically trying to go for these domesticated behaviors, but he wasn't trying to go for the weird physical characteristics that were totally un, unexpected. And, you know, the, the big lesson there is just how complicated these genes are and that they're not a one-to-one -one relationship. There isn't a specific gene that just controls the hair color or just controls the behavior. These genes interact, they interact in funny ways they, and they interact in ways that are way beyond what we can comprehend right now. And that's one of the reasons for conservation genetics taking a pretty conservative approach. The fact that there's so many unknowns out there, it's important for us to not assume that we know everything and to just try to, or try to conserve as much natural genetics as, as possible in all these populations, foxes and otherwise, because you know, we know that these unique traits are important. We know a little bit and we're gaining more information and more technology of how to pin down the genetics, but we're a long way from knowing the big picture. So right now it's important to try to maintain as robust of wild and natural populations to maintain as robust and wild of habitats and places like wilderness areas and things like that. And just do everything we can to keep those natural systems going in this rapidly changing and modernizing world. If you haven't already seen the study, go look up the dog eyebrow study. Uh-huh. Yeah. It is yeah. intriguing. One question that uh, I guess we can end with. Anybody studying the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and what makes it an ecosystem will learn about the relationship that grizzly bears and whitebark pines have and how important the whitebark pine is as a direct and indirect food source for the grizzlies. And now you have research into a relationship between whitebark pines and red foxes. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm so, so happy that you brought that up, Gary. Um, so, I mean, it, it basically kind of started off when we weren't expecting that at all, nor were we even planning on studying the diet of the population. We had enough going on trying to put radio collars, try to collect genetic samples, try to do this snow tracking. We weren't expecting to deal with uh, the, the diet at all. And on the first winter that I was up there on the plateau, we saw a fox scat walked up to it and it looked like a little grizzly bear scat, just like you're saying. I mean, it was full of these pine nuts and pine shells. And yeah, if, if it had been about 10 times larger and in the summer, 
I would have expected it to be a grizzly bear scat. And so we were pretty excited about that, but really didn't think too much of it until um, met up with a friend, Jesse Logan. He's kind of a, a local legend, uh, ski bum in the winter, uh, trout bum in the summer, spends his time between Emigrant and Cook City, and is a renowned retired ecologist from the US Forest Service that studied white bark pine and the impacts of climate change, especially with the pine bark beetles that are threatening, among other threats, the white bark pines at high elevation. So we told Jesse about that fox scat and he, he encouraged us to keep looking into it and keep collecting the scats. And so we did and we found that over half the scats that we collected that winter were jam packed with these white bark pine nuts. And that year happened, the white barks, they don't produce nuts every year, kind of every seven years or so is, is this cycle and they call it masting. It's kind of like the cicadas that are coming out on the East coast this year, kind of a similar thing. It's a cyclical abundance um, to, to, because it's such a high value food resource. If they produce seeds every year, well, some squirrel would just set up shop in that tree. He would never leave. He'd ever eat every seed. And the tree, I mean, he's not trying to feed the squirrels. It's trying to produce other trees. So this is a way of, of avoiding the seed predation is not producing the seeds every year. So that first year that we found all the, the fox scats happened to follow one of these big seed production years. The next year was a low seed production year. And behold, we had much fewer, only one scat had a trace amount of the pine nuts in it. So it was made for a nice natural experiment, totally unexpected. But the other thing that we found was when we looked at, again, our habitat use data, we actually found a little shift in the foxes the previous year when the white bark pine nuts were available, were spending more time in the habitats where there were white bark pine and squirrel middens and things like that, where they would get the nuts. Whereas the next year, they were spending less time in those habitats. So that kind of suggested that perhaps the, the animals were actually preferentially spending time in those habitats. They weren't just happening to encounter these white bark pine nuts in their day-to-day -day business. They were actually targeting them. And so we, we looked into that a bit. We don't have the best, the most data. It's a sample size thing. It's, it's kind of tough to go out there and collect a robust data set from just following foxes around in the snow. And uh, so we, we didn't really get enough data to, to prove with the stats that this relationship was going on, but we got enough to, to kind of bolster our suggestion, say, hey, this is worth looking into. So one of the, the cool outcomes of that though was, I mean, after, after reporting this, we started hearing from other researchers, other fox researchers who were saying, shoot, I, want, uh, I saw a fox scat full of white bark pine nuts out in the Cascades and never thought anything of it. Maybe we should look into this more. And actually, when we were up on the Beartooth Plateau, we found a American Martin scat that was full of white bark pine nuts. And so I think, you know, the, the grizzly bears get a lot of press, but I think there's a lot of animals that benefit and, and really focus on and use those white bark pine nuts. And so just kind of recognizing the widespread importance of all kinds of animals, not just the squirrels and the bears, but the foxes, the martens, and who knows what else, really goes to show how important that species is, the white bark pine, and how critical it is that we work hard to conserve it. Any story that starts out with scat is my kind of story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, um, I, th I think I've given you at least two um, poop stories so far in this uh, interview. So I'm, I'm doing what I can, Gary. Um, I think I have learned more in this short time about foxes than I've ever <laughs> learned in a full-length session. Absolutely. Thank um, you so much. Just to, to close up, though, 
tell us something interesting about foxes, red foxes, any other fox that people may not know. Oh, I mean, shoot, I think we've covered a lot of interesting ground. We talked about the Greek myths of foxes. People across the world, across time, have felt a connection to this animal. And that's where I think that doing this, this research, it is important because people, not only we've talked about why they need to be conserved for their genetics and for their relationship in the ecosystem, but it's also important because it's something people care about. And it's something that people are able to connect to nature through these personal connections with a charismatic animal like a fox. And so I think that's, you know, by protecting the foxes and their habitats, we're also protecting a lot of other animals that they, they live with and a lot of other aspects of the habitat that maybe don't catch the imagination quite as much, but are just as important. And so I think the, the foxes kind of serve an important role with us in our society, getting people involved, getting people excited and getting people interested in nature and importantly, conservation. One of the reasons I'm really grateful for you guys for putting on this podcast and for inviting me to be here uh, is to help kind of share this and share this excitement and get other people excited about it too. And I guess the other part of it is because I owe it to these animals, you know, the the, those foxes that we took genetic samples from and put collars on, they didn't sign up for this study. They were not necessarily willing volunteers. I mean, this was a stressful experience for these animals. And so it's kind of up to all of us as scientists to make that sacrifice worth it and do everything we can with the, the information and the stories and the knowledge that we gained thanks to those animals. And so I'm, I'm grateful for any opportunity to, and share those stories and really grateful to you guys at Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary for putting this on and inviting me here today. In, in the interest of conservation and for those listeners out there who might be really excited about foxes now after listening to this, what is something that they could do in their own backyards whether the backyards, you know, be Yellowstone or around the country to help protect foxes or keep giving them a space that's safe and keep them out of sanctuaries. Yeah, I, because we do have a lot of backyard foxes. And I think one important thing is, is to avoid kind of like the bears around here in Montana is we want to make sure that they're not getting into human food, whether it's pet food whether it's garbage and things like that, and try to try to maintain those natural connections. And we do see it when people start feeding foxes, they will become habituated and they will come around and not be doing their natural behavior. So we're sharing an environment with them. If you see a fox in an urban or suburban area, it's that's not necessarily unnatural because they do live everywhere. But when they're doing behavior like coming to your back door or begging or feeding on human food sources, that's unnatural. And so we anything we can to, to kind of coexist with these animals without influencing or interfering with their natural behavior is important. I think the other thing that people can do, not just for foxes, but all wildlife and all wild places is to just kind of stay involved, to listen to podcasts like this, to read articles, to get involved in stewardship projects and volunteer projects and support organizations whose mission it is to protect animals in their habitats, because that's a way that people can get involved and actually have a meaningful impact is by supporting the work of conservation and, and engaging in it and actually participating in it. So I think that's something that folks can do. This has been absolutely wonderful. 
This again is Patrick Cross, the executive director of the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness Foundation. This is a lot more about foxes than I've certainly learned in a long time. It's a good time to remind everybody that wild animals are great wild animals, but they're not great pets. And we need to remember that bringing in uh, an adorable little fox or coyote pup or wolf pup or raccoon, uh, whatever it might be, getting it habituated, feeding it, getting it to know you could ultimately mean the death of that animal as it's unable to deal with its own environment in the future when you're not there. Uh, so thank you again, Patrick, uh, for spending so much time with us today, and uh, we'll have you back on. Okay, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Eden. Um, all, I'm hap happy to talk about foxes anytime. We are dedicating this episode to our red fox, Rex. He passed away last week after 12 wonderful years with us at the sanctuary, an incredibly long time for a fox. He was a cautious little guy, preferring to spend his later days napping in the hay on his platform rather than playing tricks like the foxes we heard about today. But the sight of his ears peeking above the hay in the morning will surely be missed. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, where we're going to be talking about wildlife laws here in Montana. And I'm not speaking just about hunting laws, for example, but laws about who owns wildlife, who can own wildlife, who can exhibit wildlife like we're doing here at our sanctuary, and about a bill that this sanctuary wrote and sponsored that was just signed into law by Montana's governor a little bit ago. This is new ground for us as we generally don't get involved in things political, but it's an important one that really affects the way sanctuaries like ours operate. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or if you have questions for our upcoming episode on wildlife laws, you can give us a call at 406-426-1210 and leave a text or leave a voicemail that we can go ahead and play on the air and answer your question next time around. You can also email podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org. Hope to hear from you. Our hosts are Executive Director Gary Robson and Education Manager Eden Wandra. Our theme music was written and performed by Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. For more information about our podcast, please visit yellowstoneecosystem.com. To learn more about the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, please visit yellowstonewildlifesanctuary.com. I'm your announcer, Mason Williams, and I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. <laughs>